Welcome to our next GU ASCO 2021 podcast. I've been allowed to do the introduction on this one by Brian, um, <laughs> which uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, we're here with Monty Powell, a great friend and colleague of ours um, from Los Angeles. Monty, are you going to introduce yourself? And, uh, and then we're going to fire away and talk about your study. So if you introduce yourself, bang in straight into the trial. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, Monty Powell here. I'm a medical oncologist in Southern California at City of Hope. And, uh, you know, this is a study that um, I've been working on for uh, close to a decade now, but uh, it was a study that included patients with metastatic papillary kidney cancer. Uh, Monty, just before we start. Yeah. 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 Listen. Um, that was like know, a three second in interruption. I mean, that was yeah, a record. But, that was a new record. It, no, no, but it is important, Brian. It's an investigator. When I heard 10 years, yeah. we've all done 10 year trials. It's an investigator initiated trial and they're really hard to do. And it's extremely difficult to do. And I found I'm not all virtually all mine have failed, as you all know. <laughs> but um, but Monty, it's extremely difficult to do this. And, and, you know, you guys need to be the whole team who did this needs to be congratulated because irrespective of the results, doing randomized perspective, investigating shared trials is extremely difficult. And, um, and, 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 and that's really important, irrespective of what it shows. So I just wanted to say that at the beginning. Oh, I, I appreciate that, Tom. And, and the crazy thing is, you know, the study was sort of like an accordion. It started as a two-arm study. Believe it or not, it was supposed to be sinitinib versus cabozantinib uh, right <laughs> from the outset. <laughs> we actually ramped it up to have six arms at one point with, you know, other companies collaborating. And then it went down to five. And ultimately, we, we settled on just four study arms. So I'll, I'll cut right. <laughs> so it's I'll papillary, cut right it's metastatic papillary renal cancer or non-clear cell? It, it just metastatic papillary specifically. So we, yeah. we really wanted to go with um, papillary subtype you know, with the premise that maybe MET was really sort of driving the biology. And so the study compared SNPNIB, which I think is as good a standard as any, you know, back at the time to one of three MET inhibitors, uh, cabozantinib, crizotinib, and savolitinib. And ultimately, uh, crizotinib and savolitinib actually fell out fairly early on. Um, we did a futility analysis after we incurred about 15 events, and there were just 45 patients on each arm of the study. Uh, cabozantinib ultimately uh, met the primary input of the study with an improvement in progression-free survival about nine and a half months versus five months with snitnib, and then there was an improvement in response rate as well, 24% with cabo versus 3% with snitnib. So that, that's the study in a nutshell. So, Monty, let's talk about this, this MET thing, which we keep coming back to in papillary kidney cancer. Given that the MedArms fail, and in fact, their PFS hazard ratios were above one, does this tell us that we're not sure if MET's important? It certainly reinforces that VEGF inhibition is important. Or is there some other target of Cabo that's making the difference here? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're used to seeing these patients now in the clinic, and it's not unusual to see patients with you know, mixed histologies, clear cell, papillary, et cetera. And, and the, even the preclinical data for papillary suggests that VEGF may still be an important driver. So maybe we really do need that dual VEGF and MET inhibition in order to, you know, affect outcomes in this population. Monty, in the savlistinib trial that was presented, the Savoir study presented before in MET positive patients by a panel gene-based approach, um, 
the um, the hazard ratio for savalitinib versus sunitinib was actually pretty low. I can't remember. I know if for survival, it was sort of 0.5 or something. I know it was underpowered. There are only 50 patients in each arm and all the shortcomings associated with selected trials and rare cancers. But that data looked pretty promising. I remember we had a podcast with Tony Chueri around that where we talked about, if you might remember, I'm marching up a hill or getting up a hill. And, uh, I, I can't forget it. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you think about that? Because that is met purely driven. And where, where is the evidence that VEGF has got anything to do with papillary renal cancer, Brian? I mean, you did say that you thought it was relevant, but I'm not sure we've shown that yet, have we? Well, I think yeah, just... yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, we have actually quite an extensive discussion of this. We have a paper coming out related to SWOG 1500 and the Lancet that's going to accompany the uh, oral presentation. And, you know, we, we really dive into some of the preclinical data suggesting that VEGF is overexpressed, not just in clear cell, but in papillary as well. So, you know, I think it certainly has a role there. But to your point, Tom, I mean, I actually was very intrigued by the Savoie data, and I think there's probably a future for more specific than just papillary-directed therapy, met-directed therapy. So I'm, I'm really hoping that we see a resurgence of that. I, hope, I actually really hope we see a resurgence of your data from Calypso, which I thought was just stellar. So, you know, moving forward, I, I think there's definitely room still for trials that, you know, really focus in on met-directed therapy. Um, just before we go any further, so just drill down the, some of the trial results first. So the hazard ratio for disease-free survival was was what? Yeah, so you know, in the in the, the comparison of cabozantinib versus sunitinib, hazard ratio there was zero point six. Um, you know, p value one sided was zero point zero two, but our uh, confidence intervals didn't overlap with one. So you know, one critique of these randomized phase two studies is, hey, you know, why go with that one sided p value? You know, ultimately, so long as you actually produce a 95% CI that, you know, doesn't encompass one, I think it would have sort of stood against a two-sided uh, p-value as well. And the response rates in the two arms? So the response rate with CABO was 24%. Response rate sinitinib was 3%. And, uh, you know, I think that kind of mirrors, you know, some of the previous experiences. You guys probably remembered Nazar uh, Tanir at MD Anderson did a prospective evaluation of sinitinib and papillary kidney cancer. And response rate there was a whopping, you know, zero percent. But there, there's been, a, I always describe it to patients, at least when I was giving them sunitinib, that it was very hit or miss. You had patients who clearly didn't respond, but others who responded quite well, maybe to your point about importance of VEGF. So there've been other studies that, that sunitinib's done better in, but it's clearly not a great agent. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, we, we certainly uh, dive into that in our presentation, you know, lo lots of mixed data around sinitinib, but the yeah. PFS seems to co coalesce somewhere around five to six months at the very most. And that's what we saw in our study and response rates, you know, somewhere in the ballpark, of maybe zero to 10 percent. Um, and Monty, let's go to the hazard ratio for survival. Hazard rate for survival was 0 0.8 here. And, uh, you know, that kind of actually closely mirrors the data from, from Cabo Sun to some extent, um, you know, we're uh, going to show off our survival curves. And I, I think there's something to it. We need long. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to actually see, um, you know, ultimately the survival favor cabozantinib as well. Um, I've got a couple of questions around um, the tolerability profile. There seems to be a big debate about the right dose of cabozantinib right now. Um, and in the Cabo Sun data, sorry, in the, the combination with Evolumab, many patients going down to 20 milligrams. What was the dosing like in this trial? What proportion had the dose reduced to 40? And was the dose reductions commoner with cabozatinib or sunitinib? 
with cabazantinib and snitinib arms. And the tolerability not any different than what we've seen with both of these drugs and trials of clear cell kidney cancer. You look at the rates of grade three, four toxicity, and there's nothing that really stands out uh, with respect to what we observed in our study. Brian, do you want to follow up? Yeah, I'm sorry. I get lost you guys for a second there. So, um, um, do you know what? Do you want me to follow up? Then I'm good no, to no, no. I've got one more question. Go ahead. Go for it. Um, Monty, is my last question. Um, Dave McDermott did a papillary renal cancer study and showed quite high response rates with single agent pembrolizumab. Um, what's the role of pembrolizumab here? I mean, he's got here sort of response rates of above 20%, going up to 30% in the PDL one biomarker high. Um, so the ORR for papillary was 28% or 29%. Is there a role for, I mean, you've done a randomized trial. You've shown cabozastinib is better for PFS. I'm guessing that you're going to suggest tomorrow to, um, that it's the new standard of care. Where, where does papillary, where does, where does immune therapy fit in with this? Yeah, absolutely. New standard of care, but I mean, clearly lots of work to be done in this context. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with the keynote 427 data that you allude to in various contexts. You know, we've got other data sets like Checkmate 374 with nivolumab monotherapy in the setting. And, you know, the, the challenge is, you know, we're still contending with, you know, single arm data in the context of those studies. So uh, I'm actually working right now with Ben Mon to uh, generate PatMet2. Ben is a young investigator at uh, the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Utah. Great guy. And uh, he's actually pushing forward a design uh, through the cooperative groups uh, via SWOG that's going to look at cabozantinib plus or minus atezolizumab. Um, you, you may ask a little bit about the rationale for that. I'm happy to dive into it, but the study is going to be CABO plus minus IO. And I think that's really going to address the question of whether or not IO contributes in this population. Monty, why not, why not, why not use Nevo in that trial, right? You have CABO Nevo with established yeah. efficacy again in clear cell, but based on your data here with CABO and, and single agent immune data, although better with Pembro, you know, wouldn't it make more sense? I think that makes perfect sense. And honestly, we have some flexibility in the design at the stage we're at right now. We're open to using Cabo Nevo in this population. You know, we just reported out at ESMO last year some of the data from our non-clear cell cohort, uh, and specifically amongst those patients with papillary kidney cancer for Cabo Tizo. I'm not aware of Cabo Nevo data non-clear cell at this point. Um, so with that in mind, we just had a little bit more substantiation for Cabo Tizo at this, uh, at this juncture. And my position is that PD-L1 inhibition is less robust than PD-1 inhibition in clear cell kidney cancer. Do you, is there any reason that wouldn't be the case in non-clear cell? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question. And I, I just don't think we have enough data to, you know, uh, substantiate that at this point. I, I, I love some of your comparisons of PD-1 versus PD-L1. And, you know, I've kind of seen a lot of your dialogue on that via Twitter. Um, and, and there certainly may be something to it. Um, I, just, I disagree with quite Did a lot you hear that, Tom? I have Twitter. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite a limited yeah, yeah, clearly. <laughs> but but I, I think the challenge is we just have no great direct juxtaposition. And Tom, I don't know if that was what you were going to propose, but you know, I just don't think we have any direct juxtaposition of the two. So it's hard to say that one's better than the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so a patient comes in tomorrow has you know frontline metastatic papillary needs treatment, et cetera. Um, let's say Cabo Nevo is approved, you know, and you obviously have Cabo 
what do you give them? Yeah, so I was just talking to a patient advocate about this because we're, we're really trying to get our patient advocates involved as we roll out PatMet2. And, and, you know, um, the, the point that we sort of coalesced on is we don't want to do any harm in this population, right? And, and you know, as uh, benign as we often think checkpoint inhibitors are, obviously, when you go to the doublet, there's some added toxicity. Yeah, you add hepatotoxicity, et cetera. And, uh, you know, our thought was that, you know, as so we can be purists, our recommendation is that we should go with cabomonotherapy in this population. And we should wait until we have a trial like PatMet2 to really establish the role of adding. So, Monty, let me push you on that. PatMet1 took 10 years. So if PatMet2 takes half of that five years, right, what are you going to do for the patients who don't go on trial? Yeah. Everybody should go on a trial. I totally agree. But my... You know, I'll, I'll give you my opinion after you answer. You know, if a patient comes in the door, you know, and you can give them Cabo or Cabo Nebo, you're saying you're going to give everyone single agent Cabo. Yeah, I'm, I'm still going to sort of employ that do no harm philosophy in this case. Um, I'm not sure okay. if that's going to be popular opinion, but until we've got the data, <laughs> you know. I've got no problem with that. Yeah. I don't think, you know, why not go with the evidence that's in front yeah. of us? Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I guess I would disagree. I would, you know, I think the only chance of patients being cured is with immune therapy. So even though we don't quite have the purest data, you know, we clearly have data for efficacy and safety of that combo and similar combos, you know, uh, in kidney cancer in general. And so if it's, if it's me or my relative or my patient, I want them, you know, to have potentially curative therapy. And I don't think we're doing that much extra harm with the addition of an IO agent. But you don't know that that's, you not don't know. Well, we do a lot of things where we don't know with certainty, right? Tom? We don't give many, well, we don't give many drugs where we don't know. Oh, I, I disagree. We can talk about that. <laughs> before the end of the podcast it's another example would be good um so monty two key questions um the first is um do you think this will be rolled out from a global perspective and interpreted as the new standard and is that something that you're going to be saying you know this is better than sunitinib we shouldn't be giving sunitinib despite no survival advantage um or are you going to say that actually because the survival advantage hasn't been hit both drugs are attractive, but actually the preference is to give um is to give cab- How how are you going to handle this issue? Yeah, I, I would suggest it's probably the latter between the two. You know, when you mentioned that global perspective, obviously there are markets where frontline cabozantinib or maybe even cabozantinib as a whole may be inaccessible. Um, you know, but outside of those scenarios, I, I think that the data really strongly supports you know using using cabo as upfront therapy. Now, one thing that I will say, Tom, is that this is still an area that's fertile for clinical trials. So, you know, if we were to see a study design that rolled along with perhaps, you know, a, a less desirable uh, control arm than cabozantinib, I, I, you know, want to sort of think about it extensively, but I'd be open to, for instance, studies that, you know, are specifically directed at, you know, met, uh, uh, met uh, altered populations and maybe still consider a sinitinib control arm there. And, there and my last question, is there a subgroup of patients that, does or does not benefit particularly, number one. And number two is um, nephrectomy. Is there a role of nephrectomy in upfront metastatic disease? Yeah, a great question. I mean, I think that since my philosophy is, as you know, now is uh, TKI could prevail in the frontline setting for, um, uh, for papillary disease, I think we can probably lean on experiences like Carmina to say, you know, perhaps cytoreductive nephrectomy doesn't really render a lot of benefit you know, to this patient population, right? Um, you know, having said that, I think there's also supportive data from the IMDC and other groups where for papillary disease, cytoreductive nephrectomy just doesn't seem to carry a lot of benefit. 
for your second question, which is actually it's just the money question, who doesn't benefit from cabozantinib therapy? I'm going to probably lean on one of my colleagues, Brian Schuck. He's you know, one of my former co-residencies at UCLA and just does a lot of great biology for non-clear cell disease. So he actually has an NIH grant attached to the study that's going to do a deep dissection of MET status. Uh, that's data that we don't have rolled out in our presentation or publication. I, I anticipate that maybe later this year or next year. Um, but that'll really help us understand, you know, perhaps if, you, if you're not met altered, you know, this isn't a necessary strategy. So, Monty, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think this is as strong of a data as is possible to to produce in papillary kidney cancer. I think we've seen that, you know, with other efforts. So even if there's not a survival advantage, we're comparing targeted therapies here, right? And there's never you know, in terms of showing a survival advantage with two targeted therapies, that's been difficult. So I think the response rate in PFS advantages for me would certainly be enough. And, and again, congratulations on the data. Um, are, there lar are there other large papillary studies that are using Sutent as a control arm that would maybe need to rethink it? I'm not aware of any, but I'm not quite as deep into this as you are. Not that I'm aware of, Tom. Yeah, I mean, they, there are discussions about discussions. This. Okay. Yeah, there are. And the question that I put to you, Brian, and, and, uh, of course, uh, Monty to you is, do you think that those trials can go ahead, um, in the U S um, or, or in those countries where cabazacinib is accepted? Some might say, because there's no survival advantage, it's okay. Others might say, well, you're giving an inferior drug, particularly I, if PFS is your endpoint. Yeah. I was going to say, I guess it depends what the endpoints are. I mean, if it's PS, PFS, I don't know how you can do a SU10 control with these data. But do you think it's ethical to give Susan to the control on? I wouldn't say it's unethical. I just think we have data now to show that Cabo is better on these parameters. So why wouldn't you use it? Um, Mo Mo Monty, what's your take? I think if it's a unique population, and I might consider, for instance, a met-altered population to be wholly distinct you know, from, from the population that we assess. We assess the broad swath of patients with papillary kidney cancer. I'd still consider is there any, uh, Monty, is there any role for Cabo plus an, another or a different MET inhibitor? Oh. I mean, again, I'm still sort of coming back to this MET idea, and I still remain unconvinced because these data tell me it's more the VEGF or VEGF plus, but I'm not sure what the plus is. Sure, sure. No, that's it, a fair question. I mean, uh, unfortunately, Brian, I mean, my experience with the crizotinib and sabalitinib arms really suggests to me that, you know, any Cabo plus competition, uh, combination with, with those agents specifically would just be those, you yeah. know, uh, prohibitive in terms of toxicity. A met monoclonal antibody, maybe, um, but I, I'm not sure if that would hold the same weight. Yeah, I don't, and again, I don't know if the biology, that question made any sense. I was just sort of thinking out loud because we keep pounding on this MET, but yet, I'm, but the MET inhibitors failed miserably in this trial. No, it, it, it... And I think that point's important, Brian, because, you know, that, there, there, there is an important point there, which is that when you started out on this journey, Monty, I'm guessing you're not, you weren't, you were expecting the MET inhibitors to do a bit better. And in that Savoir trial I described before, when you select patients with met alteration, savalitinib appears to be pretty good. So your translational program in this work would be really exciting because you might be able to show the same results and partially validate what's been done already. And that would be really cool. Absolutely. It? And, and, you know, what was so interesting about Savoir is that, you know, my understanding is the study didn't close because of accrual. In fact, you know, I, I dissected this uh, fairly closely. It looks as though accrual to Savoir was faster than, than for PatMet. In fact, uh, <laughs> We're not sure why it closed. I'm still not sure yeah, why it closed. And, and my understanding is it had to do with something with the snitnib arm, right? So in this population, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, you might know this the data better than I do, but it looked as though snitnib sort of outperformed previous expectations, right? 
Well, it's a bit confusing, I think, but I do know a little bit about this. And, 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 and I think the answer to the question is it actually wasn't recruiting that well enough. And, and there was a discussion along the lines of what you suggested. And I think people just lost, lost momentum behind it because it, there was a feeling that if the Sunitinib arm was doing really well in this biomarker selected population, then the original data, you know, then sabalitinib would have to do really, really, really well to beat sunitinib. And I think people got cold feet. And of course, it wasn't recruiting fast, obviously. And so I think it was stopped because it was seen it would just take too long and would never get there. But, um, uh, I, but I think that speaks to sort of the extreme variability of sunitinib in this population, right? From 0% response rate to, to I don't know what, what's out there, 10, 20%, you know, so it's, it's a bit all over the map. Right. You know, and maybe that's what happened. It also speaks to the sheer determination of Monty and, and the SWAG team, et cetera, to get this trial done. Because because there were I'm sure there were ta- there were desperate times where you felt like it was losing momentum and, and you know, was not going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. My biggest surprise in the whole study is that they didn't close us sooner for approval. <laughs> <laughs> on, on that happy note, we've got our 20 minutes, so we're going to have to wrap this up, I'm afraid, Monty. It's been terrific. Congratulations again, Brian. Last word from you. Um, no, congratulations. Congratulations on the Lancet um, publication. And spectacular. Uh, look forward to doing it again. Hey, guys, can I ask you for a huge favor? Would you consider doing a birthday shout out for my fellow Nosley? She's like your number one super fan. We have super fans. You have super fans. She's the only one super fan. She is the one. Yeah, she's got your amazing we'll posters get, on I mean, her walls. She'd be very welcome to uh, to come and join us. One, you know, we we could do with a super fast fan of the show, couldn't we, Brian? A super fan podcast. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it's a happy, happy birthday, birthday and I hope it goes really well. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thank you. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye-bye.